In 2022, 274 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. Preventing, mitigating and responding to humanitarian crises is a challenge. Can fiction and storytelling play a role? Can it raise awareness and motivate action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises? My name is Ruth Mukwana and I host the Saha podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. Welcome. I have a great show for you today. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to my YouTube channel, like, comment, and share this video if you like it. My guest today is Askold Melchnak, Melnichak, who is the author of The Man Who Would Not Bow, published in 2021, The Ambassador of the Dead, What is Told, and The House of Widows. The Ambassador of the Dead was selected as one of the best books of the year by the Los Angeles Times. The House of Widows was chosen by the American Libraries Association's book list for an Editor's Choice Award as one of the outstanding books for, 20, for 2008. Ascode has received a three-year Leela Wallace Reader's Digest Writer's Grant, the McGuinness Prize in Fiction, and Majid Prize from Penn for his work as founding editor of Agni. In 2011, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs honored him with the George Garrett Award for Outstanding Community Service in Literature. His work has appeared in the Missouri Review, the Getzberg Review, Kenyon Review Online, the Three Penny Review, Plowshares, and the New York Times, among other many places. He co-edited from Three Worlds, The New Writing from Ukraine, the first English language anthology of contemporary Ukrainian literature published in the U.S. In 2021, he was co-recipient of the Heldit Prize for his translation of Oksana Zabuko's Story Girls. He has taught at Boston University, Harvard, and in the Bennington MFA seminars. A professor at Umas Boston, he founded Aerosmith Press in 2006. Welcome, Ascode, and I'm so excited to speak with you today. I'm delighted to be here, Ruth, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so very much. So I have so much to speak with you about today, and I'm so grateful you shared your, some of your essays with me again, uh, which helped me remember some of the writing you've done on this topic around fiction and its power or what it, you know, its potential to help us in a very way. And I think to me in driving change, which is really what my podcast and this YouTube video is, is really about. Your essay, The Art of Disillusionment, Alejandro Yodosky and the Uses of Fiction, you discuss, you know, his book, Where the Bad Things Best. If I ask you a bit about that essay itself, what is this book about? Um, Yudorovsky's book is a kind of a um, tragic family tale about um, children who are survivors of pogroms and holocausts who wind up in South, living in South America, and they're living out the consequences of their history. Um, it, it's a ferocious uh, and riveting novel um, in some ways in the spirit of Garcia Marquez's uh, 
100 Years of Solitude, though I think with a somewhat darker vision. And I was actually, as I was preparing to speak with you, I was also looking him up, mm. and I think his films are much more famous or popular than uh, his uh, novels or his written work. Yes, that's true. You know, that he is in, indeed, I first came across him as a filmmaker um, back in the day, I think it was in, sometime in the 1970s, uh, when uh, I went to New York City to see um, El Topo, which people call the first midnight movie. It was being shown at midnight in some you know, art houses in, uh, in New York. And it was this kind of surreal picture that really um, kind of captured the spirit of the times almost worldwide in its um, uh, extravagant imagery and its sort of dreamscapes because he, you know, he himself is a really interesting character who, uh, among other things, does tarot card readings and uh, um, has a very interesting set of values. I remember there is one, I, I watched a, a YouTube video of one of his tarot readings to a quite a well-known uh, film director with a well-known film director. And uh, he advised that director to make more failures because he feared that <laughs> success was destroying his art. <laughs> so, so he's an interesting character all around. And this was my first exposure yeah. to his fiction. Yeah. Yeah. And actually in the essay, you do speak about, um, I think he believes in failure and actually hopes his work fails. But you also say at the end of the essay that, you know, his book, Where the Bad Things Best, actually was a master success. Yes, I felt that. I felt that I think most readers who immerse themselves in it will wind up agreeing with that estimate. Yeah. So in the essay itself, you write that this disillusionment has always been the fictionista's reason for being. And I think a lot of the essay is around this idea of disillusionment, if I'm right. How does this, how is disillusionment fiction's reason for being? Um, yeah, well, you know, it's a great question, something that I have um, uh, come to believe over time from several different angles. Um, first, let's consider uh, what, um, that we live in a world where we're constantly being sold illusions. I think that um, you know, most of the com kind of commercial world is trying to sell us an illusion that this or that product, this or that lifestyle will somehow have a you know a deep and lasting and meaningful effect on our our souls our bodies our spirits and and of course we know that that's nonsense um and yet again the whole culture is built on a kind of collective mad ponzi scheme and and um you know even, even um well-meaning stories in newspapers um in some ways give us a sort of very illusory and flickering sense of reality and what fiction does is kind of go behind the scenes, behind the headlines, and bring us to um, life as it is actually lived by most of us, which is complicated, uh, visceral, uh, physical, emotional, soulful. You know, that is that there are many levels at once to, to all of our experiences. And that is, I think, what fiction is uh, remarkably suited to conveying. Um, it's also, I mean, you know, illusions almost by definition are, after all, meant to blind us to realities. And fiction, using a variety of means, um, sometimes jolting and shocking us into awareness and presence, sometimes enchanting us out of the spell that 
the illusions of um, kind of contemporary other kind of um, facile media have wrapped us in can bring us back to seeing. You know, I and again, these illusions are shattered in many different ways. I always recall um, my ex- experience of reading um, Garcia Marquez's A Hundred Years of Solitude for the first time. Um, when I finished that book, and I still remember it, it was um, a July, hot July night uh, back in 1972. Uh, and I put the book down and I stepped out uh, into the night and I looked at the sky and I felt I had seen it for a first time. You know, it helped really kind of strong and powerful fiction helps us to see the reality around us. Right. No, and I, to be honest, I had never, until I read you, I said, I never thought about this idea of, you know, illusion and disillusionment and how literature or storytelling can really help us to actually get to a kind of deeper truth. And how does um, Yordowski do his do this in his work? Well, I, th- I think that he, um, in his case, he's especially um, successful at um, creating these astonishingly vivid images. Um, one particularly unforgettable one is of uh, a burning man dancing. Um, and that that image itself sort of plants, is implanted in the reader's consciousness and awareness. You're startled by it. But as you allow yourself to recognize all that it implies, you know, he is a kind of burning, dancing man set on fire by the horrors of history. And uh, uh, he is in some ways um, declaring his um, rather wild decision to um, destroy the kind of greatest illusion of all, life itself. Um, so, so that is, I mean, I, I think, again, Yudorovsky's genius is cle- clearly related to a sort of cinematic skill in that he creates his very vivid um, portraits for us. Uh, and, and the fact that they quicken in the mind's eye rather than on the screen uh, is to me, uh, uh, to me reinforces their power. Um, I mean, I, I'm, my strong feeling is that uh, it's precisely the kind of silent imbibing of mm-hmm. words uh, and the kind of gradual um, self-creation of the images the writers have offered us that makes them so much more potent than things we see at a distance and on a screen, which of course have a great power as well. No, and I agree I agree with that as well. I mean, also words in many ways. And I think in your essay, you also talk about how a lot of leaders really use words. Um, and I think you make a linkage with that, you know, words and, and how powerful they are and how actually they are also used a lot. But there's also this idea in your in this essay and, 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 and another essay that I'd like to talk to you about, about um, his work seeking to transform, this idea of fiction and, and transformation. And I think I'll just read a bit from what I got from your article so I don't misrepresent it. But where basically you say, where the bad things best involves the transformation of violent acts into images of often stunning beauty. He is the archetype the archetype of the wounded healer, the artist, analyst driven by a need to repair his own psychic scars. That is to, to say, to teach by example, becoming the physician who begins by healing himself. And you also mentioned on his website, he actually has um, this quote that says, 
I think it's a quote from Einstein where he says, logic will get you from A to B, imagination will take you everywhere. And uh, you know, I want you to speak to me about a lot about this idea of transformation that you come to in this essay and in, in another essay of yours. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, and 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 I'd also love to hear your take on uh, on this idea because again, as 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 a writer of fiction, you are working with this sort of very strange kind of um, capacity of our minds, and uh, something that I I don't recall ever studying in school. And I've in fact <clears throat> looked for uh, work that helps me to understand that I've not found that. And that uh, by that I mean the imagination itself. Um, you know. So, so uh, transfer. Transformation, of course, is the underlying reality of our sort of very being. We're constantly being changed. We're, we're constantly being transformed by all that we come into contact with. Um, for the most part, we um, don't notice the subtle ways in which we change, but every room you enter, in fact, in some way, uh, changes you and you change it by your very presence. So again, your know, transformation happens, and that's at a very subtle level. At much more obvious levels, um, you know, we change from um, a, a, a gleam in a maternal eye to a, right. you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Up until this sort of a figure that walks on three legs at night. And, and, uh, so, so it's really, you know, again, all of nature is an image of change of living on the East Coast. I mean, this, if, if, if I have some reservations about life in California is that it can, um, uh, create the illusion of kind of continuity because the weather is always so damn perfect. Whereas right. the advantage of living, um, somewhere where you have four seasons is you're also very vividly reminded of change. But again, it happens, you know, in a, a garden is a great image of change. Humans are great image of, images of change. A city, the city that you're living in, in New York. I mean, you, 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 um, I, I grew up just outside the city and, uh, I'll tell you that I barely recognize most parts of it when I walk through it now. It's so very different. So transformation again is an essential aspect of our experience. And then, in art, you know, art is um, often uh, heightens uh, uh, what the, we get numb to in various different ways, so that um, uh, characters' views are um, sometimes elevated, or sh the rhetoric is sharpened, so that it kind of cuts through the um, the drone of daily language that we are surrounded by most of the time and uh, that we ourselves lapse into all too regularly. Um, so it, it, we're, you know, it, when you write fiction, and, and again, you, you don't simply write what happened. You know that it's somehow been uh, transformed through the dance of memory and imagination. Right. Um, yeah. No, I, and again, to be honest, I had never thought about it. And I'll come to your other essay, uh, you know, the importance of moral complexity in fiction. Because again, you, you talk about this idea of transformation and transforming. And I think here, there you also talk about um, the Buddhists and when they, they yes. were going through these human rights violations and how actually they had this ability in their minds to transform their thoughts about these um people who are committing these terrible atrocities and to see them as as mothers as 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 as, as you know as 
people who are in many ways incapable of um, wreaking this this havoc this havoc on them to be able to survive that experience. And I just want to actually for you to talk to me a little bit about more in that as well. Sure. No, I mean that that's of course um, an example of the power to transform at the deepest uh, level of morally and physically to transform your experience according to a certain set of values to which um, you have committed yourself. And um, the passage you're speaking about um, specifically there refers to um, my experience of a Tibetan Buddhist teacher that I worked with um, in in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, who um, had uh, spent, there was a, one of the teachers I worked with uh, um, had spent 10 years in uh, prison, um, imprisoned by the Chinese, um, had been tortured, um, and he came out of it, that experience, a loving and compassionate individual. And, you know, that had everything to do with the kind of mind training, as they call it in Buddhism, that he had done over years of um, learning to use everything that happens to him to transform it into something positive. Now, um, you know, I suppose that there are other, there are other spiritual traditions that have similar, uh, um, suggestions, prescriptions, right? You know, to you, you should, you're advised to turn the other cheek when you're hit. Um, you know, a a writer friend once said, but nobody has three cheeks. Um, Mm -hmm. it seems, however, that, that, um, some, some practitioners kind of deeply spiritual come and again that word spiritual has been so overused so maybe i'm going to try to avoid that people of kind of great um moral and imaginative capacity are able to take the evil that has happened in them and transform it uh internally into uh something that they can use somehow and in part i you know i think it grows out of this recognition that there are consequences to every action including to every thought you have and so you know if you get angry at someone who's hurting you um, the person who's actually hurt by the anger is yourself um, there it's it, this is not a, a suggestion that you should not react or respond or attempt to stop um, someone who is committing um, an evil negative or hurtful action but once that has happened what do you do with uh, with that how do you um, do you allow it to scar you and transform you forever because of the actions of someone else or do you take charge of um, your own sort of life experience and um, find a way to I mean and this is again this is to me very radical uh, because yeah. it's easy to say and <laughs> truly truly very hard to do and so I've only met a handful of people who I can say have actually practiced what we're talking about here but they have done that um, and and uh, it's it's a powerful example and lesson um, in that it suggests a way in which we can remain standing um, no matter what is hurled at us, and I mean, can remain sort of um, confident inside ourselves, um, and at the same time, possibly even helpful to others. I think that what you know, and what's so interesting to me, and what, what makes what makes has made me often imagine or think about fiction, the practice of fiction as a kind of um, itself a sort of meditative practice, um, is that in the kind of spiritual practices and uh, religious traditions that um, 
urge you to uh, love and forgive your enemies, there is an act of an imagination that in fact happens. Um, and it's that sort of imagining that that, and what I mean by using, by imaginative is not like pretending, but it's actually right. um, recognizing that every present moment has with, has an antecedent moment. And so that, that what is happening to you now has its sort of roots far, far uh, from this present moment. And, you know, in that way, you can extend every moment to that sort of, you know, and suddenly here we are, children speaking to each other, but we have been transformed by time itself. And if suddenly it is a child who is you know, doing this terrible thing to you, you wonder what caused the child to be that and what are the circumstances that shape it. And then you begin to recognize that it's very hard to... um pinpoint um, fault uh, cleanly. You recognize that it is a sort of grand, big mess that we're involved in. And the question is how to get out of it. Sorry, that sort of got, you know, maybe more <laughs> elaborate. Than, <laughs> but it, it's a hard idea to put across. And, and, you know, I know many people are very skeptical of the vocabulary around it. Um, so I'm trying to find a language that, that suits because Fiction is very much about, you know, very physical and embodied things as well as about feelings. Yeah, but, you know, I guess, and, and, and it's, it's, I mean, for me, listening to you, I'm also like, I could ask you a thousand questions about this, but I guess in many ways, I agree, um, and, and ultimately it depends on, on the characters that writers seek to build. And, sure. and, and as I was listening to you, I was also thinking, because at least when you were teaching me and all of the other t teachers that, Bennington, it was always like, you have to have characters that are compelling uh, and that people can, there has to be wholesome. I don't know if that's the, the word I'm looking for. And I wonder, you know, and, but then as I was reading your essay, I was also thinking, is it about having these characters that transform in, in, in some ways, whether positively or negatively um, I don't know but that's one of the things I was actually uh, thinking mm. about as, as mm. I was um, reading but also listening to you now but this brings me to your own writing and um, mm. so in one of this 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 other essay uh, the importance of moral complexity in fiction I think there you say that um, I don't know if they say or if you think it too that your favorite characters are often unsympathetic and unforgivable. Uh, I've never thought about, I mean, from the, the stories I've read, I had never thought about it that way, but I know we'll also, we'll also be speaking about one of your stories, um, Walk With Us. But I just want to ask you, is it, is it actually true that most of your characters are unsympathetic and unforgivable? <laughs> you know, uh, um, I, I, there, there are many sort of delightful and likable characters um, that I have uh, been smitten by um, over the years. But what I think that I'm really trying to get at is that it's, it's this idea that when a writer sets out to um, prove a moral, then the writer is um, in danger of flattening the complexity of experience and that, you know, it, it, it's, um, the, what's important is to recognize that 
Well, here, here's another way of thinking about it. Um, the, 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 the poet uh, William Butler Yeats once said that when you um, argue with the world, the result is rhetoric. When you argue with yourself, with yourself, the result is poetry. And in fiction, the way for me that sort of plays out is that um, if you already have kind of a clear sense of who your character is and, and what they represent and what their values are, and you're going to present them kind of very kind of deliberately and schematically, um, then your character is likely not to be either absorbing or even credible, partly because as humans, we are complex beings and have the you know, good and bad, positive and negative inside all of us, somehow how we recognize it. Um, the decision of uh, what we do with what we contain is um, how character is formed. And in part, fiction is about the formation and unfolding of character through action. Um, so it, if there is not a kind of tension within the character um, or, or a tension between characters, um, then they're simply going to wash over us and we will inhabit a kind of the realm of illusion rather than the realm for me of reality. Um, because there is, again, I think this kind of constant, you know, you, you can talk about it in many different ways when traditionalists have talked about a struggle between good and evil. But again, I'm interested in the kind of struggle between these sort of forces within individuals. And, um, you know, there again, as writers, we can do it different ways. We can present, you know, the, the good character and the evil character. But we know, again, that, that most people are shades shaded rather than one or the other and uh it's in you know um it's in fa fan fantasy and in fantastic film and literature that the divisions between good and evil are so so clearly portrayed so um but there i suppose what i had in mind was in some ways i've tried to understand why i have uh, been responsive to the kind of extreme voices of characters in an austrian writer like thomas bernhardt or another Austrian writer, Elfrida Jelinek. I don't know if you know her work at all. She's, um, you know, uh, she, she writes these ferocious novels about, um, the kind of violent relationships between men and women. And, and right. a number of them are, are take place in, um, post-war Germany. And, you know, again, you, you feel there's a brutal honesty, even as, uh, in, in her portrayals and a courage in portraying this, the, the kind of the vicious behaviors. Um, and you wonder as a reader, what am I getting out of this? Well, I guess I'm getting a sense of, of what had happened there at that time, in that time and in that place. And I believe it. If I had been presented with a kind of scrubbed clean uh, picture of, you know, um, happy family life, then I would, um, have been cheated and been right. lied to. Um, so, so it, it's, um, you know, Dostoevsky spoke about um, the importance of uh, poly creating poly polyphony in your fiction, you know, and again, that was in taking characters who um, appear to be really negative and then kind of getting into who they are. Um, you know, there, there, there is um, a novel, Thomas Bernhardt's, in which he, it's a crazy book. Um, it, it's, it's called, I think, Limeworks, and in it, a character rants on about conducting experiments in audition and hearing by reading long passages from the anarchist writer Prince Kropotkin to his wife until his wife finally picks up a shotgun and shoots him. And, you know, it's kind of a crazy, crazy idea. But while you're reading it, you're reading it with a sense of heightened awareness. Right. And I think in some ways intensifying in the intensification of our being um, is another way to 
bring us into focus and allow us to perceive the world more clearly and vividly. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm curious about your experience. I mean, you know, do, do, do you, um, are, are you down with uh, unlikable characters or do you <laughs> only you like know, ones you can associate with? I, as even as I was reading your essay, I was actually trying in my mind to understand who is a relatable character and what do we mean mm. by that? Um, mm. You know, most of my short stories, at least suddenly or if you look at even the reason I'm doing this conversation with you, to me, it's because there's so much violence around um, and wars and, 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 and how those are really impacting a lot of people across the world. And mm. we have to write about violence, uh, I believe. But I've also, and I read a lot, I mean, I read fiction, but I also read about war because I'm always trying to understand what drives people to commit such levels of violence. Um, and so I guess, I don't know if it's really the topic that the writing is about, because if we're going to write about violence, suddenly, I don't know, or is it, I guess what I'm trying to say, is, is it the topic that one is, is, is writing about that makes one think about relatable characters? Because to me, mm. everyone is infallible and we all have all of these nuances which are going to become much more uh, evident if you're going to write a story that is dealing with violence. But I could not put my finger on what is it we mean when we talk about relatable characters. Well, I think that, what, you know, I, I, it's, it's a phrase that I hear a lot from my students. Right. And uh, what they mean is that they are somehow like them, you know, ethnically, racially, age-wise, you know, that this is a, about a teenager from, you know, X, Y, and Z, and that's kind of like me. And uh, so um, that's why I can right. associate with it, and that's why I'm interested. So, you know, so it's the idea of using fiction as a, as a mirror, whereas I think we both agree that fiction is partly a mirror yeah. and partly a window. Yeah. Right. You know, you're you're looking at your, you know, uh, uh, to it, it reflects it reflects experience, but it also points us outside ourselves at the, at the larger world around us, um, which is the context through which we all move and we all see a different part of that. So so I think that that's, you know, that's basically right. um, what I mean, the way I understand relatable being used um, uh, by people for the most part. And so, you know, when you're writing about violence, um, fortunately, you know, the majority of people still, despite the you know horrific numbers that you cite at the head of your podcast, um, you know, about the number of people who have experienced violence or are undergoing um, or become refugees in the last years and so on, for the most part, people have not. And so they can be kind of put off and say, well, gee, I kind of, I don't get this. Right. I don't get this. But let me ask you, I mean, what, what is it that is... Um, uh, make you want to probe this question in the first place? What right. is your, in your own experience? Right. I, you know, I've always, I don't want to say I've always, I mean, I'm from Uganda and I didn't grow up. Um, by the time I, I was growing up, um, for many, in many ways, Uganda was very stable. Um, but my parents did experience the war back then, you know, in the 70s mm. and 60s after uh, colonialism. We did go through a lot of instability. But even as I've grown up, there was war in the northern part of the country that 
you did not necessarily mm. feel in Kampala. So in many ways, you know, we had that war that was going on and affecting people, but mm. that we never really had about. But I also grew up in a region that was very unstable and experienced a lot of war mm. and continues to. I can't explain why I was drawn to work um, into in the humanitarian sector itself, but I've always felt very strongly about <laughs> fairness. <laughs> And, mm -hmm. and social justice and, and human rights. And of course, as I've been working uh, in countries affected by conflict, I think to me, the trauma of war is much more bigger than we realize. And, 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 mm -hmm. and children who are born in war, who have experienced violence in their lives, the impact goes with them all of their lives. And so, but at the same time, I, it's, it's, it's not easy. I think what you were saying as well, what people relate to, the characters they relate to, it's not very easy to relate to violence or to even understand it, um, even if you've gone through it. And that's why I've always felt that fiction, to me, is a very important tool and vehicle because it does much more than talk about the violence. It actually does create characters that in many ways are going to connect to many people across the world. Um, yeah. Maybe not the violence <laughs> part of it, but we do have mm. domestic violence. Mm -hmm. We have different types of violence right. as well. But these yeah. people affected by violence, this is not the just part. This is not the only part about their lives. You know, these are people with families, with friends, going to school, you know, with lovers that then, you know, violence destroys and, you know, a mother's struggle to raise a child anywhere is the same. Um, so that's why I'm very much trying to understand how can we use fiction to actually mm. create much more connection and understanding and perhaps curiosity about these situations that people are caught in and hopefully also try to figure out a way that we can actually find mm. a better life for everyone. Yeah, great. I mean, yes, you know, I, it's it's important and valuable to hear you say that. And, and I think that that is um, where we also share a lot of common ground, because my parents were refugees who fled um, Ukraine uh, at the, toward the end of World War II, um, had experienced intense violence, lost friends, um, you know, walk, lived in cities as they were being bombed. And I grew up with those stories. And I also did um, see the um, after effects of that, which linger onto the third generation. I mean, that's why I think that work you're doing is so very important precisely because, um, it's not simply a matter of the kind of, you know, PTSD that those directly involved in violence, um, suffer, but all those who are, who have grown up in that atmosphere, um, and their, they yeah. pass on to their children, um, an approach and a way of being that, um, is different yeah. than what people growing up in stable circumstances experience. Although I will say that my wife and others who've grown up in the U.S. in pretty stable circumstances have always wanted to remind me of that war inside families yeah. that can happen under the most comfortable circumstances as well. And uh, that may be where the sort of characters who've grown up in extreme circumstances um, are relatable, if you will, to um, those who have grown up in worlds that appear to be, you know, uh, easy and comfortable, but in fact, behind locked doors are anything but. Yeah. 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 And I think this makes me come back to the point what you're mentioning. I think when you were answering one of my questions that I asked about, 
you know, relatable characters and, and, and this power of um, stories to transform, you know, you, you kind of mentioned, you know, in a story, it's never about that moment of in, in the life of that character. It's not about what is going on, but there's always a backstory, you know, what was this character's right. life as a child that perhaps right. helps us understand why they are doing whatever the, it is they are doing um, in this exact moment. And I think... This is a good segue in to talk about um, your collection of short stories, The Man Who Would Not Bow and Other Stories. And within that, I really wanted to talk a little bit about Walk With Us. And my first question for you is, what inspired you to write this story? Sure, yeah. Um, so uh, this story was written um, sometime toward, uh, perhaps a little bit after the end of, the second Iraq war um, that uh, G.W. Bush led us into, uh, that disastrous experience that did so much to destabilize um, the Middle East. Um, and uh, it, as I'm sure you'll remember that I'm not, I don't know whether um, uh, any, everybody listening to this will recall that there was a, a prison um, set up in Baghdad uh, called Abu Ghraib, uh, set up by the Americans, um, and uh, at a certain point, I think it was CBS News um, did a, a, a profile on the kind of horrors that were taking place inside that prison where American soldiers were um, grotesquely abusing and torturing their Iraqi prisoners. Um, so th this sort of story emerged with a series of haunting photographs um, Again, some people will recall there was one of um, a naked Iraqi man with a black hood standing on a stool, I think, with kind of electrodes on his fingers. Um, and then there was a photograph that I was just haunted by from that series of a young woman um, holding a naked man on a dog leash. And that, that photograph just kind of haunted me. Um, you know, how... how how can you not ask a question? How did how did this happen? How did this young American woman wind up in Baghdad with uh, holding a naked man on a leash? I mean, it's sort of unspeakable. Um, the thing is that you know that photograph was so um, uh, ferocious and penetrating that you know I thought I, I couldn't put it out of mind, but I also did not know what to do with it because it itself was already a kind of an editorial comment. Yeah. What more needed to be said? It shocked right. the world. It went around the world. What more needed to be said? But you know, at the same time, I, I felt that there was more to that story than that image. There was the human story. Um, there was the story of the prisoner himself, and there was a the story of um, the young American woman. And so I tried to imagine um, what her life might have been like. And I thought about it for a long time, and I kind of put it out of mind, and then I sort of had this idea of, um, looking at her family, but I did not want to lapse into the sort of familiar cliches because, you know, again, part of the problem with cliches is that they just fall on deaf ears. You don't hear them. They don't, they don't really kind of speak to us. They don't quicken us or waken us up, w wake us up to what's happening. And so we kind of try to imagine what, what else besides the obvious could have her child have been like that led her to, that led this young woman to that place and to behave in that way. And so I, kind of began to uh, imagine a character of her mother and eventually you know the photograph itself sort of uh, faded uh, from 
you know, kind of became less important than the character of the, of the imaginary character of the imaginary mother. And she began to tell me her own story. And what comes out in that story is that, um, she had been living a lie and she kind of recognizes that at the end. And so that there was some implication that there is, there are consequences to living a lie. Uh, it allows um, others around you to keep lying as well, and and so anyway, so that was a the, the, but, you know, but the story developed by kind of looking at a character related to the character who had inspired the story. Yeah, and and you know, and, and writing through it felt somehow cathartic, and that's I think one of the things that I, a word that I we haven't used yet, but I, I do think that it's an important one to use in the context of this conversation because we don't sort of write violence uh, to shock, but as a kind of pro cathartic process, both for the writer and the reader, ideally. Yeah. No, yeah. and, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, I've read this story, and it's a story uh, I'm going to read a lot. You know, I'm a mother, so um, to me, you know, it's also just uh, a story of this mother trying to understand how did this happen? And I think you mentioned uh, the stereotypes there, and I, you do mention them in, in, in the story itself, where, you know, she's like, yeah, of course, everyone is going to think some abuse must have happened to, to this child. Everyone is going to look at the parents. And so to me, it's just kind of that story that is just going to stay with me for a very long time. But that it's, to me, it also has, a, in a way, a transformative quality to it. There's some kind of closure, I think, for, for, for at least the, the, the mother at the end of it. Um, but even then, she's struggling. And, and you know, I don't want to judge my child. It's not to, for me to judge. But there is this evil mm. she's trying to understand. But I also, the story also mentions a little bit one of the things, because, you know, some people think this character is a hero for doing what she has done, and others, right. you know, feel that she's a monster. And I had a kind of a bigger question for you of, you know, I mm. grew up um, hearing America was this greatest democracy in the world, and being here sometimes and also seeing what's going on. And I know also I was listening to you when you did a reading on your new collection of stories where you said America has always been at war and I had never really thought about it. But then I did the moment you mentioned it. I was like, yeah, of course. But I did want to ask how did that happen, that kind of polarization where you have a nation, I don't want to generalize, but where some people feel actually this is a heroic act and others feel it's a monstrous act. Yeah, um, well, sure, you, you know, that's, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you've landed on the very kind of big issues of our moment, um, because we're, you know, this country is living through a terrible crisis, perhaps the worst of my lifetime. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember Vietnam and Kent State and, and, and uh, so kind of civil rights violence of the 60s. And, and uh, um, those those were terrible uh, periods, uh, but in some ways, what uh, is at risk now is, seems to me, without overstating it, it's democracy itself, um, and it, and it is you know that it does come down to a crisis of values, but this crisis has you know, deep roots in this country. Um, you know, I I was rereading, um, I was actually doing having a conversation with a couple of writers from Eastern Europe on the state of democracy in Eastern Europe and. Um, 
as I was preparing for that conversation, I was rereading um, the 18th century French nobleman Alexis de Tocqueville's book, Democracy in America. Um, God, is that way? Suddenly I've forgotten de Tocqueville's famous title. Anyway, I think, I think it was in, uh, something like that. Um, anyway, and, and in it, he, um, you know, de Tocqueville was this, again, this, uh, a young French nobleman who who came to the United States to study its systems and institutions, and he traveled across the country, you know, in horse carriage by horse, right, and uh, visited small towns and cities, and met with the president, and uh, um, and to, visited city halls. And what he discovered was a profound, deeply rooted tension between um, two forces: one that was um, intensely anti-democratic and autocratic that believed in hierarchy that believed in you know that in in uh the virtues of slavery that here we were like greece you know slave um, owning slaves was your very right and almost your responsibility to civilization um to uh democratic um anti-hierarchical spirits who believed um some of the rhetoric of the constitution and uh believed that we really possibly were created equal mm-hmm. Um, and, and those two, so those two forces were really kind of underlying, um, this country from the start. In fact, you know, I, I was reading a letter of, um, the second president of the U.S., John Adams, uh, writing to his wife, Abigail, in which he said that democracies are the weakest form of government. They, and also the most violent and they inevitably fail. Right. Um, and, and, you know, so, so, so that again, you've got, and, and we know, a little bit better or we're much more aware these days of the kind of genocidal roots of the settling of this country, the um, slaughter of indigenous populations, um, the the horror and history of slavery that are at the roots of the building and creation of this country. Uh, something from which this uh, we have um, collectively, and again, you know, not to generalize, but I can tell you that again, in my kind of public school education, this was not touched on it, you know, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so there's been a kind of collective blindness um, that we are in some ways trying to um, make up for in certain parts of the country today. There's a real intense backlash against that because people would prefer to live in the illusions, with the illusions they had been raised. You know, it's like you say, if you stop believing that America is the home of the, uh, of the free and the brave, then it's, you know, my God, it's worse than stopping believing in Santa right. Claus. Um, you know, and, you know, and, and this in some ways, you know, we're, we're talking about history in this very big way, but, but it, that's precisely an example of the danger of illusions. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the challenge of truth right. uh, and fact and, and, um, and again, while historians can adduce, you know, historical facts to us, what I think we as fiction writers um, are empowered to do and what we can add to the conversation is to bring in feelings, you know, emotion, um, the sort of internal lives of characters, uh, which historians do at great peril. You know, historians look at what has actually happened, what has been said for the record. Whereas we get to overhear characters in their, you know, we get privileged glimpses of characters in their private moments when they are speaking off the record and saying things they wouldn't want anybody else to hear, you know. And so anyway, so so I, we're in a very, very tough moment um, in this country right now. And uh, 
<laughs> what, 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 Ruth, what, what can we, you know, <laughs> mere writers do? I mean, you, 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 you've been thinking about this and doing this for a while and have had a number of conversations on this topic. So I'd love to know what conclusions you've come to. Oh, I wish I had some conclusions. I'm going to do research uh, on this actually for the next few months. I'm going on sabbatical to do this. Mm. But to me, okay. I, my biggest thing that I'm hoping can happen is that we can continue to find good writing, good fiction, um, that we can actually talk about and discuss. Because to me, even the conversation we are having would not have happened if we were not talking about fiction. And it does create that space when one can actually get into these characters that, that we are discussing. And I do want to ask you about Sheila too. In fact, I think one of my, you know, as I come towards the mm. end of our conversation, I want to know, going back to this question of relatability, is Sheila too a relatable character? And, and, and what does that mean in this story? And, 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 and you know, can we mm, at some sure. level as readers understand her? Is there salvation for her? You know, if that's the, the word I'm looking for. But to me, it's really trying to see how do we immerse or create these characters that are as complicated as they can be that are in these situations whether it's violence, whether one is looking at larger political questions, that we can actually then have a conversation. And out of that, I'm hoping that we can actually share perspectives and hear each other's. And then hopefully it can help us actually start to see what we can do to contribute to a better world. And to me, ultimately, to stop violence. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's the noblest of aspirations. And uh, I, I feel, you know, similarly motivated. Um, and one doesn't want to get kind of grandiose about it, right? Because, you know, we're, we're, but at the same time, I think it's the very impulse that you're acting on in having these conversations is a profoundly important one because it suggests that you recognize that human nature um, is not a fixed entity, but is actually profoundly fluid and so that um, if we can prevent circumstances that create uh, and drive characters into certain situations uh, we might be able to do a little something to um, contain um, that part of human character that flares out when the conditions are ripe. So you asked about Sheila too, and Sheila too is the name of the, um, the character in Walk With Us who's not actually in the story at all. She's the torturer, the young woman who winds up holding a man on a leash and torturing him. Um, and, you know, the story is again focuses on her mother's attempt to reconcile herself to her daughter, whom she remembers as, you know, somebody she nursed and, and, and raised and whom she loves despite this evil thing that she has done. And she is, instead of trying to point the finger at her, looking, um, in fact, finding that she needs to look at herself in order to understand her daughter. And that she, the fact that she is, what she wants for her daughter is uh, for her daughter to be able to transform herself from this monster she has become because precisely because of the fluidity of human nature that remains always a possibility so that and and she is you know at the end um 
urging her daughter to recognize that she is still capable of loving. And if she is able herself to love then and is able to express that, then she herself will be at some level, you know, and again, it's, um, I'm not sure if the word is forgiven, but she will also be able to receive love. And that it is that atmosphere that can short circuit that human impulse um, to act violently. Yeah. That's a sort of, you know, that's the kind of <laughs> no. abstractions yeah. behind the character, the embodied character. No, that, that is so powerful. Oh. And I'm probably going to leave it at here. But, um, yeah. and I know when we were speaking, you did mention that in, in the end, it's also all of us as humans being able to forgive ourselves ultimately. Um, you know, I think you said something about anger. You know, anger affects you as an individual probably more than um, anyone else. And so that kind of searching, and I guess in many ways to me, this is why this story is so powerful. Of course, it speaks to what happened in, in, in Iraq and how that in many ways was also um, seen through this picture. And of course, when I read the story, I immediately remembered um, because I did mm. see those images. I don't remember where I was, but I did see those images and I'm sure like many people being shocked by it. So digging away at it and trying to see, okay, through these characters, what really happened. But it's to me also that kind of stories that in many ways signifies the trauma of war. I mean, this mother was not mm. physically in that war but yet you see how this family over here in America has actually been so impacted um, by by that war. But I'm going to end it here as cold, and I don't know if yes. you have any questions for me. Um, I, you know, I, what I really um, hope that you will do is um, soon uh, really give us all uh, some kind of... Uh, you know, if, if not a summary, but but you know what what you are, some sense of what it is right. you've discovered, because I think we're all looking for um, the next right. step and the ways in which um, we as writers can also kind of contribute uh, to preventing the debacle that is looming, you know, the the, the, the danger, the, the thing that we're all afraid of. Um, happening in this country, you know, the, the the thing we've always believed can't happen here that is at risk of happening, and I and I believe that you are uniquely positioned because of the research that you have been doing in a very focused way for quite a while now. Um, I'm hoping to read the results of that. I definitely soon. will. So Ruth, definitely, <laughs> <laughs> definitely will. Hopefully right. by the end of this year, uh, because I'm, yeah, I'm okay. doing some more work. I'm continuing the interviews, but I'm also going to be working on some research with the University of Virginia. Um, and so hopefully out of that I'll be able to share some insights not my own <laughs> but of the people that I've really been speaking to along the way I look forward to that very much thank you so much at thank you, thank you so much really for making the time and for sharing your thoughts with me thank you very much for watching this video and if you've enjoyed this conversation with us code please subscribe to my youtube channel like share and comment on this video and if you'd like more information on this conversation and this project please find me on twitter at booth underscore mukwana 
that is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A. You can also find more information on my website www.ruthmukwana.com. Thank you and I'd like to wish you a really blessed 2022. Goodbye.